Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. Prove It makes exogenous ketone products a perfect accompaniment to your ketogenic lifestyle to help you to optimize energy levels, sports performance, cognitive function, and more. See the show notes to try some today. Dr. Jay Wrigley, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Yes, welcome. Uh, you've a very popular request on our podcast, so thank you so much. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. We uh, got a ton of questions from listeners when we said that you were going to be a guest, so we're looking forward to covering a lot of good ground today. But for those of our listeners that aren't real familiar with you, just tell us a bit about, about your story, about your journey. Okay. So um, my journey began some probably 25 years ago or something uh, where um, I was studying nutritional biochemistry and uh, I was getting ready to start medical school at the University of Chapel Hill. Um, I decided to do some, uh, took a break and did a little bit of traveling before I was going to get started. And I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, mainly in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and some areas over there. And I, I remember that back now. This is probably almost 30 years ago. I remember how watching the difference of the approach to medicine and healthcare from the Asian perspective as what I had already seen by working in a hospital uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And uh, it was fascinating to me because everything that I had seen up to this point was basically the medical intervention and treatment of people that were not well with a pharmaceutical or surgical approach, and that's basically what you had. Um, over, over on the other side of the, of the planet, basically, they had a, a very nurturing way of healthcare that if you were not well, their, their goal was to nurture you back to wellness. And whether that meant um, a complementary of things of, of changing the diet, of using certain botanicals, or you know, a lot of things that they do over there, we don't really see over here that much, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, I, I, I never forgot that, all right? It, it, it stuck in my mind that there is something about that when health is missing or, or absent, that one of the approaches that you need to use is to the restoration of health. This is not always about using a pharmaceutical to manipulate a symptom that someone's having. 
And so I began my career with all that with that in mind, and it and it shaped me a lot because as I went to medical school and then later trained as a a uh, in in functional medicine. Um, I never wanted to lose that part of that wellness was, is what we really should be about. I mean, uh, you've heard, heard me probably say this a lot that, the, you know, the word doctor really comes from the word docere in Latin, which means teacher. And that's what we really should be. First and foremost is to educate people of how to get out of their own way and get well. So <clears throat> skipping forward a little bit throughout my educational process, I uh, this was was through one of my mentors uh, in medical school, uh, a, a wonderful woman by the name of Dr. Tori Hudson, who kind of took me under her wing and uh, taught me or, or showed me that I had that I, I I had something about the understanding of hormonal biochemistry, and it fit really well with female patients. Um, not sure exactly how that happened, but it it turned into a uh, almost a quarter century now of this being my specialty of looking at the various influences that happen through the transitions of, in women that set them up sometimes for problems that need to, that have to be addressed hormonally, whether it be a shifting of too much of one hormone, not enough of another, uh, one of the major endocrine glands, whether it be the pituitary, thyroid, adrenals, ovaries, um, has taken on too much stress, cannot keep up with what its job is. Another gland gets involved, tries to make up for that. And this whole symphony, this cascade of dysfunction begins to happen. And so that is kind of where I have placed the majority of my focus in my practice, let's say for the first 20 years anyway. Then what happened, so I was mainly working with peri and postmenopause and thyroid dysfunction and PCOS uh, and things like this. Well, throughout that process, it, it's so it's so much of an intellectual heady game that I was doing that I was not paying attention to my own health. Um, I was doing what I thought everybody's supposed to do. I was keeping my fat intake low. I was eating plenty of grains and whole ri you know, rice and beans and, um, <clears throat> and and things like this. Well, I I I evidently had the metabolic syndrome. My family had some of this or whatnot, and I bloomed up to close to 100 pounds more than I weigh right now. This was about five years ago where it all came to light that this is unacceptable. I'm supposed to be a, you know, a physician and an, an example, and I began to study everything I could because it obviously to me was not about that I was sitting around eating junk food all day long. There was something else that was going on that kept me from being metabolically healthy, and I needed to know what that was. So I began, you know, opening the books like all of you have and began to understand this relationship between things that spiked hormones, which got me really excited. I was like, okay, this is a hormone thing, right? And that's, that's my love, right? So this is a hormone thing. I can control my metabolic health by understanding the hormonal response to the foods that I eat. And this, you know, led me to the whole uh, understanding of insulin, hyperinsulinemia, um, and and I began to apply this to my life by removing foods that spiked insulin, and eating more protein, which it was driving thermogenesis, helping out hormonal balance or whatnot. And so 
over a long, over a period of time of about a year, I dropped almost a hundred pounds. Anyway, I'm, I'm just, I'm telling you all of this to finish up this story of who I am, that once this happened, this was a whole new level of passion for me. And what it was an opportunity to do was to go back and look at how to mirror, how to marry, how to marry metabolic health through eating choices with the hormonal problems that I'm seeing in peri and postmenopausal women because all kinds of like sparklers went off that they're so interconnected. I mean, the women that I'm seeing with thyroid problems have hyperinsulinemia, they're metabolically broken, uh, PCOS, we know very clearly now that the only way you're ever gonna remedy that is to keep insulin extremely low. Um, and support better ovarian health or whatnot. So to finish this up, my introduction up, Chris and Nevada, I now, this is what I spend my time doing is I mainly, now I work with men also, but I mainly work with females and consult all over the world through video conferencing around hormonal health and using a low carbohydrate diet, a lot of times carnivore diet, sometimes just outside of that to fix these broken metabolisms and to reestablish hormonal balance. And so I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Yes. And that's amazing. You've had an awesome transformation uh, for anyone that's following you on Twitter. You've posted some of your before and after pictures. So I commend you uh, for that and all the research and great work that you're doing in your field. Just to give our listeners a little bit of a context of the hormonal change that kind of occurs uh, prior to menopause, perimenopause, and menopause. Could you speak to that uh, for a few minutes, just giving a general overview of the shift of hormones so our listeners have a context uh, for what we'll be talking about throughout the podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, that one's, a, a, that's, we'll try to keep this as, so I don't lose anybody. So let's, let, let me kind of walk you through what the typical scenario happens, right? So, you know what, I think I'm going to start here, Nevada, and that is this. And let me give a little people a little bit of foundational um, hormone education. So in a simplistic way, it works like this. Your liver manufactures cholesterol, okay? Now, this isn't really related to the cholesterol in your food. This is your liver's natural process of creating cholesterol. And this is one of the first things I want to lay out very clearly is why you absolutely need cholesterol. Let's get rid of the cholesterol fear because your liver makes cholesterol for a very specific purpose. That is that the majority of the hormones in your body are manufactured out of cholesterol. That's the building block. Okay, so hormonal chemistry 101, we can apply this to females, is cholesterol is taken and created into the what we call the master hormone, and that is called pregnenolone. Then once it is in pregnenolone, it can take on the form of a number of different things, but the primary one is pregnenolone gets transformed into what is called progesterone. We call progesterone the mother hormone because it is uh, crucial to fertility. You can't get pregnant without enough progesterone. You can't stay pregnant without enough progesterone. So we call that the mother hormone. Now, from progesterone, 
your body can use the progesterone to make estrogen, okay, which is another primary, really important female hormone. It can also be converted into other pathways like to what's called DHEA, which then can be transferred into testosterone. So I don't want to get too complicated, but I want you to be able to, to at least visualize that cholesterol is hugely important. It's where your hormones are being manufactured. So what happens is this, a woman gets to the age of, I mean, this could happen as early as, as late thirties, but the, the most standard would be right around 42, let's say about 42 years old, a woman will first begin to start declining in her production of progesterone. Now, this is natural. This is not a defect. This is, this is your body beginning to move into a phase of life where it really is not interested in having babies anymore. And again, it changes in each woman. It could be a different age, but let's just go with the 42, 43 area. So progesterone begins to decline in its production. Now, what this does is that one of the most crucial things about a woman's health is not the level of progesterone or the level of estrogen. It is the ratio between the two of them. So if progesterone begins to decline in production and you still have a normal amount of estrogen, and a lot of women have more than normal amounts of estrogen, the ratio of these two hormones is beginning to pull further and further apart. What this creates is a, is a situation that we call estrogen dominance, because even though estrogen is a fantastic hormone and you want to have this through most of your life, when it's in its unopposed state, and what we mean by unopposed is if you don't have enough progesterone to oppose estrogen, you are left in an estrogen dominant state. And this begins a cycle that I think a lot of you women will identify. What happens with that is this excess unopposed estrogen begins to do a number of things. One is it increases a protein in your body that we call thyroid binding globulin. Okay. Thyroid binding globulin's role is to seek out thyroid hormone and bind to it. Now, what happens when it binds to this is it makes it unavailable to the cell receptor site. So when you have an increased amount of thyroid binding globulin, you're going to have less than adequate thyroid function. So now everybody probably knows that the thyroid gland is related to your metabolism and how it does that is it's really re it's really responsible for what we call cellular respiration. It's plugging into the cells of your body so that you can attract oxygen into your cells to burn things through your mitochondria. So again, when you're in an estrogen dominant state, you're going to begin to show up with symptoms of low thyroid function. However, here's the problem. Your thyroid tests at this point are all going to show up normal. The usual ones that doctors will run like a TSH level. Actually, it gets even more confusing because estrogen dominance lowers the level of what's called a TSH. This is your thyroid stimulating hormone. So for those of you who don't know what the, what the, the TSH is, this, this is, a, again, another hormone that's produced by the pituitary gland. It's the accelerator pedal for your thyroid. So if your TSH level is high, 
which would be normally related to low thyroid function. This is because the pituitary is sending out a very strong message to the thyroid say, saying, get busy, we need more help, okay? So that sometimes can be a, re, a, a good reflective number because if that number's on its way up, then the doctor can say, okay, we're, we're beginning to see a thyroid problem and, and can take measures to, um, <clears throat> to remedy that. However, in the estrogen dominant state, which naturally lowers the TSH level, it's going to look like you have no thyroid problem whatsoever, but you've, you're developing all the symptoms. So here's what's happening. <clears throat> you're gaining weight quicker than you ever have. You have an inability to lose weight like you used to in your 30s. You try all these different types of diets and more exercise or whatnot, and you don't make much progress. Your skin gets drier. Your hair may start thinning. You can't stay asleep through the, the night. You wake up two or three times, have a hard time getting back to sleep. Um, and you ret retain fluid, usually in the lower part of your body. Um, and a lot of times this will cause some gastrointestinal distress where you'll feel more bloated after meals. So if you're having these symptoms that all are classic symptoms of low thyroid, yet your doctor's saying, hey, you know, this simple one test that we run for your thyroid is coming back into normal reference range. This often is a really big problem, and this is what needs to be corrected. And the way you correct that is first you have to get rid of this estrogen dominant state. And then at that point, that might be all you need. <clears throat> or there may be some things to do to actively increase thyroid health. Okay, so let's see, this is a very complicated thing, but I think we're we're moving in the direction of what what you know what what a lot of times will happen in perimenopause when this hormonal shift begins to take place, and a lot of this is around estrogen and progesterone and the health of your ovaries and how that affects your thyroid gland. And so, it's um, it's anyway. Here's the good news: there's help for all the women out there who are frustrated by this. Just know there is help. And one of the best things that you're going to be able to do is to start doing all you can to educate yourself. Because again, we are, we are way behind the curve where every physician is going to look at what I just said and go, uh, you know, bingo, here's where the issue is. Because a lot of medicine is still in that paradigm of, hey, we run labs. If they all check out, you're in the middle of a reference range somewhere, then you know, we don't have much for you. Okay. But there is, there's a lot for you. It starts with your self-education. One of the great things is stay, you know, stay tuned and um, in sync with these types of podcasts that Chris and Nevada are doing tons of information from various physicians that, you know, practice functional medicine. Okay. I think I'm going to stop there for a second and go on to the next question. So with the estrogen dominance, uh, the symptoms that you just described was all the symptoms that women were messaging me about and had questions around. Um, so the number one thing that women tend to do is either look for a food source, uh, change up their diet with food, look to essential oils, look to supplements to try to correct this problem that's occurring. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the macros and where on the spectrum of low carb diet trends that you're seeing in women correcting the estrogen dominance, if it's possible through food alone. Okay. Um, so let's see, I think I'll address that by saying, 
Well, let, let, let's back up one second, Nevada, and say this. Here's what I see, and I have a very, for those of you who do know me, I have a very particular slant or approach on how I address this in women who are in peri and postmenopause, and it goes something like this. So each one of the three primary hormones that is involved in late perimenopause and, and menopause are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Now, testosterone doesn't get a lot of publicity because we think of that as a male hormone, but women have testosterone and it's very, very needed because without it, you're going to have problems retaining lean muscle mass. You're going to, it's going to, it has a metabolic effect as each one of these does. So estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone all play into your, the, 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 the metabolic landscape that you have of how you partition nutrients, of how well you burn energy. So <clears throat> here's what I see. Um, I see that as these three hormones begin to decline, that what has happened here is that your need for energy, okay, it is, is lowering naturally. It's not a bad thing. But here's where I have a problem with low-carb, high-fat. You take a woman in peri- and post-menopause and try to get them to eat 75 to 80% of their calories as fat. Fat is energy. Fat is the most energy that you can possibly get out of the three macros, right? So the idea of if you've got a lot, a, either a lot or a sufficient amount of body fat to burn off that you're that's one of your goals. The idea of feeding your body a lot of fat is not really helping you at all. Because again, just like carbohydrates have to be burnt first before you're going to ever get over to be being able to burn fat. If you take in too much fat, your body's going to be burning fat all day long and never get to burning any of your own body fat. So what I see is, and, and what my, my patients tend to do much better on in this age bracket, is to adjust their macros and go from, let's say, the typical standard ketogenic diet somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% fat, 20% protein, 5% carbohydrates. I see that needing to shift in favor of maybe lowering that fat down to around 55% getting your protein up to about 40% and keeping your carbs down at around 5%. Now, this just sent off a red flag for everybody out there who wants to scream the word that doesn't protein get spike insulin and turn into sugar and then you get fat from eating protein. No, it does not. It never did. And this was something that should have never been put out there. Now, I understand why it was. Why it was, was because when the ketogenic diet really hit its popularity, it was specifically used for seizure control. There was a reason why the excess fat and keeping protein to a minimum made a little bit of sense. If you're dealing with an epileptic um, and need to shut down seizures, that was a pretty good way to do this. But for the general public, especially peri and postmenopause, you do have this biochemical pathway called gluconeogenesis. This is a brilliant, it's the greatest pathway. It's what makes us humans. It makes us be able to switch over and use various forms of energy at any time. So yes, your body can break down amino acids and fat and turn them into glucose for the little tiny bit that you need each day, but you don't stimulate that by eating protein. This is 
This is demand-driven, not supply-driven. When your body wants that extra glucose and decides to do something by release glycogen storage from your liver through, through this gluconeogenesis, it doesn't do that because you just ate a bunch of protein. Now, the people that do see that they get a little bit of an elevation in glucose and insulin after eating a lot of protein, this is the brilliance of your body. What you just did was you stimulated a hormone that also comes from your pancreas called glucagon. And glucagon's job is to go tell the liver to dump glycogen back into your bloodstream so that we can use that for fuel. This is a further way of glycogen depletion, and this is what you're all looking for. So I believe that you would benefit at, of tweaking your macros in favor of upping your protein, lowering your fat, keeping your carbs low. Um, and it, it, it takes care of a lot of things. Like one is protein structures. A lot of women complain with hair loss in the beginnings of keto. We'll get to that. I can promise you that, that nine times out of 10 is all going to balance itself out eventually. Um, but here's a couple things to think about that. One is since protein is an external, I mean, since hair is an external protein and your body would sacrifice it in a minute to keep vital organs healthy if you don't get enough protein in your diet. So eat enough protein in your diet, then you've got those protein structures to build better hair growth for sure. Another, let me touch on, go with, go with this now. Another reason that I find women have issues with hair loss on a ketogenic diet is, 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 is this simple, simple one. Usually somebody who has been educated or is moving in the direction of things like metabolic health and ketogenesis and uh, ketogenic diets and things like this, they have already usually made a switch over from something like regular table salt to sea salt. Let me tell you where this can be a problem. People don't get enough iodine in their diet in the first place. Sea salt does not contain iodine in it. Okay, now they, they are starting to make some that does, but you want to make sure that you seek that out. Here's a couple of rules of thumb for me. Either get a sea salt that has iodine added to it or blend your sea salt with a little bit of table salt so that you are you definitely need to keep your iodine levels up. Probably eating more seafood would be a good idea and to make sure that you're using some iodized salt because without iodine, your thyroid gland will be affected and you will see a negative change in hair. So that can be something for to, to make a little mental note of. Yeah, good stuff, Doc. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could talk to the role of stress and cortisol levels and how that affects this whole equation and what are some things that women and people in general can do? Okay. Okay, so yeah, this is a common one. Um, I, let's see, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I would assume that most of this audience is at least familiar with the term cortisol. So this is a hormone that's primarily produced and excreted by the little two glands that sit on top of your kidneys called your adrenal glands. Okay, now cortisol is a, again, everything's got a good and, and maybe not so good component to it. Cortisol is why we're having this conversation right now. If we didn't have cortisol in our body, we, we would have not made it through this far of, of evolution. So this is a hormone that is um, stimulated in the response to stress. Now, we, if we took this back 20,000 years ago, that stress might look like you are being chased by a large animal and you need to access energy to your muscle cells, 
and to your heart rate and things at a very quick pace in order to get away from uh, this endangerment. And so your body stimulated all of this cortisol to flood into your system. Now, that's a great thing for, for that purpose. However, we live in a day and age now where most people live with a chronic level of, of milder stress that keeps the adrenal glands secreting a low level of this cortisol all the time. So the best way we can explain cortisol in that way is this, it's doing two things. One is it's a, a even though lots of cortisol in a very short period of time actually has an anti-inflammatory effect, chronic levels of elevated cortisol are extremely inflammatory to the tissues of your body. So that's one thing you don't want because we now know that just about every disease process that we are seeing, whether it be cardiovascular disease, whether it be metabolic syndrome, whether it be, you know, of course, anything that ends in itis like arthritis or any of these things, they're all driven by inflammation at a cellular level. So you're trying to keep inflammation as, as low as possible. So cortisol is not your friend in that way. The other problem with cortisol is... For those of you who are, who are pretty familiar already with the role of insulin in the body, cortisol is very much like insulin in the fact that if you have um, if you have cortisol pumping through your system, it is going to put the brakes on fat loss. Because again, go back and think about cortisol's purpose was to get you out of endangerment very quickly. And so what that did was your body went into a self-preservation mode of we are certainly not going to do anything to let go of stored body fat that we may need because we don't know how long you're going to be chased by this animal. We don't know when you're going to eat again. So we're going to put everything, we're going to put the brakes on anything that would be related to you burning fat. Okay. So you want to keep your cortisol levels low so that you can access more body fat and burn that. Now women, especially, well, this would go true for men too. Women will notice if they've got an elevation of cortisol, they're, st they're stressed a lot that they will, particularly retain their fat, fat tissue in the abdominal area. And I watch this a lot. I see a lot of women that I work with who have a lot of success with burning body fat and getting leaner only to find out that they can't move it from the abdomen area. It comes off every day you know, in the thighs, in the face, maybe in the upper arms and things like that, but they retain it there. That's the missing piece of the puzzle there is we've got to get that level of cortisol down. Now, how you do that, we really can't speak too much about. I can't practice medicine here, but certainly you can do whatever you can to reduce your, your, your stress levels, whether that be uh, exercise, yoga, meditation, journaling. Um, the, you know, these are things that you, you have well within your control. Then there are other things outside of that in the, in the, in the realm of nutritional supplementation, we can make a big impact on this um can't we're not going to really get into specifics of that but just know that you might be able to reach out to somebody including myself uh who could make some recommendations to you of how to uh, effectively bring cortisol down so that you are back you know burning body fat now to end that chris i'm going to say this here's how this how this plays into what we were talking about earlier so just so happens 
that cortisol is manufactured in the body out of progesterone. So if you have an elevation of cortisol or your adrenal glands are needing to produce a lot of cortisol to maintain balance under the stress that you've got going on in your life, here's what's happening. You are now, you're already declining in your production of progesterone which is used for so many functions, including metabolic health, thyroid health, immune system health, and that's beginning to drop. Now, all of the progesterone that you are manufacturing is being used to create cortisol, which is now driving your progesterone levels even through the basement, right? Now, estrogen dominance is almost a guarantee, and then we have the whole cascade. Does that make Yes. So with, I just wanted to follow up with a question because a lot of women that turn to the carnivore diet uh, to try to correct hormonal imbalances tend to state that they gain weight. Would you say that this was a mechanism at play uh, with the weight gain uh, on the carnivore diet with women? Mm, that's a tough one, Nevada. But let me try to walk through that. I mean, when we reach the point of a true carnivore diet, the huh, okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna start it this way to gain weight on a carnivore diet 98% of the time, we're talking about just excess energy. This is not something because of the fact that your macros are off so much or whatnot. This would, I mean, now there, I'm going to, I'm going to follow that up with a couple of, uh, a couple of reasons hormonally why that could be, but, but just know this, if you're gaining, you're more than likely, if you're gaining weight on a carnivore diet, this is just excess energy. This is not that there's something wrong with eating carnivore. This doesn't mean anything other than more than you, you're going to gain weight on any diet that has an excess amount of energy because we have something called our fat threshold. And once you reach that fat threshold, and it's going to be different for everybody, but when you reach that fat threshold and then you continue to eat something like fat in your diet, you're going to gain weight. Not only that, but theoretically, we don't ever see this happen, but you could actually create a metabolic dysfunction that could lead to something like diabetes by having too much energy. Although we have kind of, we have, um, examples of like the Inuit people back in the day, the Eskimos who ate nothing but, you know, whale protein and blubber were never really able to create diabetes from doing that. However, they took in a massive amount of energy and theoretically the biochemistry does suggest that you could do that. So anyway, um, that's my thought on, on mainly if you're gaining weight on carnivore. So here's what I would do about that. The first thing I would do about that would be I would go back to what we talked about earlier and shift your macros in in the carnivore diet uh, to making sure that uh, that the that the fat comes down a little bit and that the protein uh, maybe moves up. I think that would benefit you a lot. Um, a lot of people out there use this term, and 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 again, it's another one of these things like glucogen gluconeogenesis. They believe that if you eat lean protein. Uh, you're going to get something called rabbit starvation. And for those of you who don't know what that's about, you might want to Google that. You'll see that they did it. They did some experiments of feeding basically animals, very high, low, lean protein. So lots of protein, 
with hardly any fat to it all, and it began to negatively affect the health of these animals. This needs to be taken with a grain of salt because we're not talking about, if you're going to eat a carnivore diet, let me promise you, you're going to have enough fat in your diet. You're not going to sit around eating a carnivore diet that's going to be nothing but lean chicken breast. So if you eat a lean chicken breast at one meal, but your next meal your, your, and your breakfast meal, you ate some bacon or you ate a ribeye for dinner, it's all going to balance itself out. So you don't have to worry about upping your protein, dropping your fat back a little bit and fearing something like these terms, rabbit starvation. It's actually probably a better macro for you. Certainly, if you're a woman between... 40 and 65, I think you're going to benefit that way. Thank you so much for answering that question because that's a question so many women have and there's a lot of confusion uh, regarding hormones and what's happening and, and how to correct it with food. So thank you so much for that. I think that will um, answer a lot of questions uh, for women that are listening to this. The other question that I had was women are reporting changes in their menstrual cycle, uh, not just in uh, perimenopause or going through the change, but just the average woman, either having the best periods they've ever had or having irregular cycles when they start a low carbohydrate diet. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that and explain what may be happening. Okay. All right, so two things. Let's talk about... Um, well, yeah, I'll start out with the positive side of that. Most women I work with as they move into more of a low-carbohydrate way of eating, um, that typically means, all right, so if we look at the standard American diet where we all started from and, and, and it wrecked most of us, then by moving to a ketogenic diet, what you are doing is you're actually elevating the level of good quality fat in your diet, which again is going to support better hormonal balance. Um, through the liver, the, the, through the uh, cholesterol management and the way that that gets turned into the pregnenolone and the things that we were talking about. So um, now, and also decreasing the carbohydrate, which was setting off the insulin, the hyperinsulinemia, uh, the mitochondria dysfunction, all of this. So uh, 90% of the time, we're going to see an improvement in hormonal health by moving in the direction of a ketogenic diet, for sure. Now, when we see a, a disruption of that, let me tell you what that might look like. We might see a woman who begins the ketogenic diet or after doing it for a little while, notices something like um, either breakthrough bleeding uh, at some time in her cycle where her period wasn't supposed to come. She might have some spotting. She might notice that for a little while, her periods get closer together where she used to run maybe a 28-day cycle and now they seem to be coming every 23 days and with some heavier bleeding during the menstrual cycle. So here's how this can be explained. Estrogen is stored primarily in the female body within fat cells, okay? So one of the things that's happening in the beginning transition of, of using a ketogenic diet or carnivore diet or something like that is you are rapidly opening up fat cells to be recycled and used for fuel. And this is what you're trying to do. But what's happening for a little while here is you're dumping a bunch of estrogen back into your body, which is going to accentuate this estrogen dominance that I've been talking about. Now, that's got a life cycle that in the long run, this is really beneficial. You're trying to clear out some of this excess estrogen and dissolve these fat cells 
but you might go through a little bit of time where that excess estrogen makes things look like uh, they get a little bit, you know, a little, a little crazy around the cycles. Uh, but that's going to go away. That's going to balance itself out and be, you know, really nice and smooth after a period of time. Doc, what are your thoughts on fasting, meal timing? Okay. Um, can I refer to Jason Fung? <laughs> I think Jason, I, I think he's got this spot on and, and, and you know, so glad that he's part of this group of people. Um, here are my thoughts about fasting. I am, uh, I am not, I am not a believer in long periods of fasting. I think that from all that I have studied, there is a crossroad of where the benefits of fasting begin to, to get lowered as the stress on the body of fasting. And so there's, there's kind of this apex here. And for most people, I see that somewhere in the neighborhood of about the 48 hour mark. So with that being said, again, there are a lot of doctors out here who spend a whole lot more time teaching fasting than I do. So use them as a reference for sure. But what I typically see is that any more than 48 hours of fasting, that the benefits begin to decline and the stress to the body begin to now you know begin to increase so with that being said i am uh, if for anyone who knows me i am you know one of my favorite things to talk about is this process called autophagy um and what happens when your body goes for a certain period of time without eating food and it goes into this regeneration and recycling mode where it begins to slough off old worn out cells and replace them with new vital cells and it clears out mitochondrial dysfunction and gets better oxygen into your cells. So, so somewhere in there is this beautiful spot of how much you should fast, how much you shouldn't fast. So for most people, I think the best way to begin the approach of this is with this idea of intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding. Um, I'm a big believer that if we look back way beyond, you know, before civilization, before every, you know, before we started growing our own food and somebody began to own the food, dish the food out, and somebody started deciding things like we needed to eat three meals a day or then six small meals a day, long before any of that, I think it would have been really hard and wouldn't even make sense that human beings would have eaten more than twice a day. Um, and, you know, I don't even know how you would have done that. You'd have spent most of your day trying to hunt for a successful kill and you would have probably spent the evening feasting on that. And then maybe throughout the day while you were hunting, if you came across something that was a, a, a food source, maybe there were some berries growing. Maybe there were, uh, you, you know, you ran into a tree that had uh, you know, fallen nuts. I, I, I don't want to get into all of that. What I'm saying is I think people eat way too frequently. And I think that for most people, if you would reduce your what we call your window of feeding down to somewhere in the neighborhood of around eight hours is always a good place. I find with my female clients, if I can get them to move closer to six, which means that in that model, you're say eating your first meal of the day, let's say at one o'clock in the afternoon, or maybe, you know, you could even move it to 11 o'clock, whatever. But then your second meal is around six hours later 
what that's doing is that's allowing a lot of time before the next day comes around that you're going to eat again. You're spending a good amount of time in a space where you're not only are producing ketones, but you also have touched on this uh, this phase of autophagy where you are, you know, you're, you're really doing some benefits that are going to lead to longevity, decrease in inflammation and stuff like that. So I think that that's a better approach. Now, a lot of people like to take that a step further. Once they begin to implement time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, then they like to venture out and go, hey, you know, Dr. Wrigley, would it be okay if I did one 24-hour fast a week? Absolutely. Tons of benefit there then sometimes they might even want to extend that into a 36-hour fast where they skip an entire day of eating. I think that that is extremely healthy. I don't know that that needs to be done every week, but it's a great tool, and I would encourage anybody to use it. Now, when it gets beyond that, like I started this out saying, where people really get into, hey, that's that felt great. I think I want to go my first seven days without doing anything except drinking water. That's when you know, I, I, I start to think I'm not so sure that the benefits outweigh some of the stress that will cause later on in that fast. When your adrenal glands begin to get really weak and have to use cortisol to manufacture some energy and all these types of things, then you might not be getting the benefit that you thought out of that. So talk to your doctor about something like that. And I just wanted to follow up uh, with a question. Are you seeing that as a successful strategy in women that are using a, a form of a low-carbohydrate diet that suffer from fibroids, endometriosis, and the polycystic ovarian syndrome? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the, at the, at the heart of just about all of those, Nevada, we're looking at um, this mechanism of hyperinsulin um, and, uh, you know, th this, these issues where the body cannot drive energy into the cells. So anything that would be low carb. And again, when I say low carb, th this is a, uh, you know, so much of this is dependent on lifestyle factors and activity levels and whatnot. What, what, what somebody, if I'm dealing with a, a peri or postmenopausal woman who is not very active, Low carb to me with that person means you need less than 20 grams of carbs a day and maybe even maybe 15 to 10. I don't know. You know. Again, that's individual. Now, you take the same woman who is an avid runner and does CrossFit, then at that point, low carb is probably 75 grams of lower than 75 grams of carbohydrate a day. So again, there's a spectrum here, but that has a whole lot to do with, are you lifting weights? Are you, um, you know, are you doing endurance type of work or whatnot, which allows you to play a lot more with carbs? But um, anyway, back to your point, if I'm dealing with any of those things that would be related to uterine fibroids, PCOS, endometriosis, which now I think we're starting to see um, a real big link between endometriosis, even PCOS, that falls within the same kind of parameters as a autoimmune disorder. And what we're seeing about that is that with autoimmune disorders, the closer you get to carnivore, the better the results that you're going to see. Now, that again, whether that means we're not saying at this point that this needs to be a lifelong choice, but if you're really looking at how to get ahead of these things and do the 
the, the most reversal of these conditions for at least a period of time of anyway from let's say three one to three months, I would recommend that you go very, very low carb, maybe all the way to carnivore. Um, it seems to produce the best results because the inflammatory markers for these autoimmune disorders are not coming from protein and fat that are animal derived. There are some type of, of a reaction at the gut level and it's to some type of a plant fiber or plant phytochemical or whatnot that is best removed until symptoms begin to really, really improve. And then you can, can begin the process if you want to, of reintroducing some plant matter back into your diet and your body will give you some pretty clear feedback of triggers of like, wow, you know, I've been without this for two or three months. I tried to add spinach back. I do not feel good. I'm all inflamed, whatever probably was the oxalates in the spinach or, um, you know, the phytic acid or phytates. But I think a good approach for those tough cases may begin maybe to begin at carnivore and then move up if they even want to a lot of you know, a lot of my patients that decide to go carnivore um and i feel that they've done it long enough um and they if they wanted to they can add some plant food back into their diet will say yeah, not, no thanks dr wrigley i don't have really any interest in changing my diet at this point because i'm doing so well so something to think about and I was just wondering if you could speak to trends you're seeing um, as far as long-term effects of women that are doing the ketogenic and carnivore diets. Um, are you noticing any deficiencies or anything that women should look out for in the long term, in your opinion? Um, well, those of the you know, for those of you who already know me, you would know that um, I I fall into the camp. And I fight about this every single day because I, I, I deal with a lot of people who are under the impression that if you eat a perfect diet, and I have no idea what the hell that is, but the, if you eat a perfect diet, then you would never need things like nutritional supplementation. I, I understand the theory of that. I also look at the world that we're living in now and the fact that we have dumped into our air and food supply somewhere in the neighborhood of like about 35,000 new chemicals a year are that we allow to be introduced into our systems that our bodies have never seen before. And it does everything from mimic estrogen, which drives estrogen dominance, to it um, disrupts the way that we absorb certain nutrients. We also know that um, the over-farming of our topsoil, especially in this country, has led to massive deficiencies in especially things like magnesium, so where I'm going with this, obviously, is I think that long term in any type of eating strategy, but certainly low carb, which is not really represented, re well represented in things like magnesium, because you're cutting out a lot of the sources of magnesium to eat a ketogenic diet. Um, so I always re recommend magnesium for, for any of my patients. Uh, other ones, uh, I think that Women need to pay attention to especially the fat-soluble nutrients, A, D, K, E. Um, if you're willing to go the extra step and make sure that you are eating sources of these, um, including more fish in your diet, making sure you're getting full-fat dairy. But a lot of women don't do well on dairy, and it's the big reason that they don't lose weight in peri- and postmenopause. 
Um, if they're willing to add some liver or organ meat into their diet, sometimes they are, a lot of times that's not going to happen. Then we would talk about this woman may need to be, to be uh, thinking about supplementation around things like especially D3 and K2 because these are so important to not only metabolic health, but they're also extremely important to bone health. You know, we've been on this for the last 25 years. The doctor's talking about, oh, you need to take calcium for your bones. Calcium is the most abundant nutrient in any diet on the planet. The, the, getting deficient in calcium is almost impossible. And calcium does not solve your problem with osteoporosis or osteopenia. This is hormonally driven. Progesterone is the, th the only thing in the human body that actually turns on these osteoblast cells that actually produce bone. And the way that you get health there is through vitamin D and K. So again, yeah, th this gets a little bit tedious and a little bit like bio-individual where I don't expect everyone to understand all of what I'm talking about, but just know that I'm a believer that selective nutritional supplementation is probably a lot better than looking at it as I don't need any because I don't eat carbs. Just, you know, be responsible about yourself and know that uh, not only that, but that I'll tell to finish that conversation, you know, for people who are just looking to be well um, and, and, and free of, uh, free of disease, then I, I understand the argument. If you eat a good enough diet, and that's what happens for you then you know then more power to you but we are living in a world now where life expectancy is hugely on the upturn or it has been until this last year but anyway women especially are living longer and longer all the period uh, all the time you want this to be the best quality of life that you possibly can now a lot of this is about genetic expression and what we are learning now about genetic expression is it's not set in stone it's not like, oh, here's the genes that you got and this is what happens. Your daily lifestyle habits influence the genes that you turn on and off. And one of the ways that you can do that is through nutritional supplementation. Um, if you better support a biochemical pathway in your body that has something to do with longevity, your body has, is more likely to turn on the genes that are responsible for that longevity and shut down some of the ones that might be leading to uh, degenerative diseases and cancers. So there's a lot to be said for where we're, you know, where we're moving in terms of using things like nutrients uh, to, to better drive biochemistry, as opposed to looking at a pharmaceutical approach to drug a symptom. Um, that's really not doing much to enhance your overall quality of life, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Doc, this is fantastic. And what a way for us to finish up our Women's Health Month. We look forward to having you on next month for our, our Men's Health Month and get into some of these topics and their relationship to men. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts for us? And then tell these guys how they can find you. Okay. Well, my parting thought would be just, you know, anybody who's involved in listening to this or who will listen to this more than likely has um, – you know, began to make some changes or, or is right there ready to do so and has been reading and, and following people like the two of you. Um, so 
just know that you, um, from my perspective and, and, and the team of people that I work with, you know, and the doctors and the, the, the group of, that I socialize with, would all say to you that you, you are well on your way to making some decisions that support better health and quality of life for sure. This is the answer. The science is now showing us very strongly that by removing the majority of insulin spiking foods, uh, by keeping your quality of protein and getting back to eating real fat in your diet and leaving the margarine and the seed oils and replacing that with good quality, clean butters and lard and tallow, uh, but being mindful of those also because you're not out to see how much fat you can cram into your diet. But by just eating whole food and eating in a, in a low carbohydrate or close to carnivore way or maybe even a carnivore way, you're doing tremendous things that go down to a cellular level that support better metabolic health, longevity, uh, clear thinking, remove risk factors from neurodegenerative problems like dementia and Alzheimer's, reduce heart and cardiovascular event status. Um, it's just the right way. And you've got a bunch of people here to support you. So if you're beginning or you feel like you're struggling, reach out to any of us. And, uh, we're, you know, we're glad to lead you along this lifestyle. It's made a tremendous difference in all three of our lives for sure. Uh, and we'll continue to do so for you. So for any of those wanting to get to me, um, I've got a number of different ways. Uh, the simplest one is my website is simply dr. Wrigley, and that's spelled W-R-I-G-L-E-Y. So drwrigley.com is my main website. I also have developed a very specific program for peri and postmenopausal women wanting to do the low-carb diet um, and do it effectively with these macro changes we've talked about. And it's called the Ketogenic Code. So you can go to ketogeniccode.com and see that work. And then follow me, you know, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram uh, or join our Facebook group, those are all the at symbol keto doc CLT for Charlotte, where I spend most of my time. So keto doc CLT and uh, you'll find me somewhere. I, hey, I, guys, I really enjoyed this. This was a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for answering so many questions that women have regarding this lifestyle and their hormones. And we're looking forward to part two for men's health, where we can learn all about uh, how hormones affect men. Awesome. All right. See you guys soon on Twitter. All right. All right. Sounds take good. care. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye bye. We are proud to partner with Blue Blocks bringing you the most advanced blue blocking lens technology available to combat digital eye strain, poor sleep, and mood. Use the discount link in the show notes and the code CKCOACH. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.